Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our very special guest is David Devil. He's the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, co-director of the Terrence J. Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, Law, and Public Policy, and visiting assistant professor of Catholic studies at University of St. Thomas up in Minnesota. Hey, David, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. And oh, by the way, you you were on, geez, probably over a year ago when we were talking about socialism. And uh, we know we did a two-parter on that, which anybody who wants to go here on that, go back and look in the archives on our website. Excellent uh job by David talking about socialism. But today we're going to talk about something not too far off topic. We're going to talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn in a new book called Solzhenitsyn and the American Culture, the Russian Soul in the West. And uh, probably before we get too far along uh, and start talking about all the things that uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn did and said, maybe you can give maybe a brief description of his life so it kind of puts things into context. Sure. Well, Solzhenitsyn was born in uh, 1918, so he was a kind of a baby of the Russian Revolution. His father had a kind of Cossack background. His mother had a Ukrainian background. His father died, sadly, before, before he was born. And so he was raised by his mother and his grandmother, who were, uh, were religious people. But nevertheless, right, this was the early years of the, of the revolution in Russia. And so he gradually came to think of himself as, as a Marxist and on the side of things. He, uh, he studied uh, uh, sciences mostly, but also literature at Russian universities. And then during World War II, he became uh, an officer in the military. He was several times decorated for his bravery, leading uh, what was essentially a kind of artillery unit. Uh, but he made the mistake of making a joke about uh, Joseph Stalin, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the premier of Russia, uh, in a letter to a, to a friend, and it was discovered, it was reported on, and he ended up serving about 10 years in the Gulag, that, uh, that series, what he called that archipelago of prison camps uh, that Russia had, in which they kept many, many people, uh, mostly for political reasons, although sometimes they would keep hardened criminals there as well in order to intimidate everybody else. But he spent 10 years in those camps, and it was during that, that time in which he discovered, as he said in his uh, three-volume work, The Gulag Archipelago, that cornerstone of justice in the universe. And he began to think again about God. Um, he discovered people who took God seriously. Um, and he had a kind of reversion to his native Russian orthodoxy. Uh, after he got out of the prison, he went into internal exile. Uh, you know, a lot of times prisoners in, in Russia, even if you let them out of prison for a while, uh, you had to keep them away from everybody that they knew right. in order that they would not do anything. Um, he, had a, he had a bout with cancer, which he later uh, fictionalized in his book Cancer Ward. Uh, but he spent about 12 years writing but writing in secret uh, because it was not possible to publish anything. Did amazing things. I mean, he was he was memorizing his long poems and long prose works, and it was only during the thaw under uh, the premier Nikita Khrushchev, in which there was a kind of openness to saying, "Well, it was bad under Stalin," that Solzhenitsyn finally got the opportunity to publish, and he published 
what's probably one of his most famous works in the West, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, about one day in the life of an ordinary Zek, a prisoner in those gulag camps. And that kind of burst things open, and he began to be able to publish a little bit more. Uh, by 1970, he was made the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, he was not allowed to leave uh, to go accept that prize, and, uh, and eventually, a couple of years later, he was he was actually sent away from Russia, sent to the West, first to West Germany, then Switzerland and and England, and then he settled for 20 years in Vermont, where he uh, continued publishing his great works uh, until 1993, when after the Russian Revolution, he was able to return home to his native Russia, and he continued to to write and speak there until his death in 2008. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a kind of heroic life, uh, almost 90 years, and with many great works, the biggest one being, of course, the Gulag Archipelago, that three-volume work that tells all about what Russia under the Soviet regime was like. And that was just a few pages long, right, David? Yeah, it's 1,800 pages. So <laughs> for, most, for most Americans, it's, it's kind of a reach, but... Uh, my mentor, Ed Erickson, who's, the, uh, who's basically the inspiration and the, the person we dedicated Solzhenitsyn and American culture to, worked with Solzhenitsyn to do a one-volume edition, for, for, uh, you know, for, especially for the sake of Americans who don't have quite that attention span of 1,800 pages. Well, you know, it's such a it's such a fascinating story of his life. And when I was reading it, you know, especially, uh, you know, reading and getting to know his life, especially the time in the in the gulags, it, it did bring, bring me to remind me of uh, Father Walter Chiswick and his yes. time and his and his book, He Leadeth Me, because they both, you know, he uh, Solzhenitsyn kind of had a reversion back to his faith, although he had lost it earlier in childhood. And Father Chiswick grew in his faith. So these were really both, and both of these men, as hard as it was, viewed this time as a blessing. That's correct. Um, I, in a course that I teach here at the University of Saint Thomas in our Catholic Studies program, called "The Search for Happiness in the Catholic Tradition," I often teach one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich because it it gives that sort of capacity for conversion. Although in the story, Ivan is kind of not quite there at the end. But Solzhenitsyn himself, as you said, you know, came back to the faith. And I often pair that with some readings from He Leadeth Me, because Father Chizik talks about many of those same fundamental themes of, of coming to a, an absolute trust in God, in providence, that, that Solzhenitsyn talks about, uh, ultimately guiding, guiding the affairs of all men and even in a, in a terrible totalitarian situation. But what that calls us all too is that deeper spiritual spiritual communion with God and that deeper what Solzhenitsyn referred to as spiritual values, and that's that's absolutely essential if you're in a totalitarian camp, but also if you're in a place in what you know what we think of as the sort of the free West. Yeah, which is really his message, right? I mean, he 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 learned so much from that time being a prisoner. And he didn't want to see it replicated, even though in a different way. And there was a quote in, or a line in the book that really struck me. It says, as Solzhenitsyn would later declare, they, meaning the Soviet Union, paid Christianity the ultimate compliment by trying to kill it, while Americans have offered the, it the ultimate insult by seeking to domesticate it. What, yeah. did he mean, what did he mean by that? 
Well, the, I mean, Solzhenitsyn saw a, a great commonality between uh, the, the, the Soviet thinking, Marxist thought, and our sort of free West thought, insofar as both of them are ultimately, uh, in many cases, held by people in a kind of materialist way. They think that there's nothing other than this life. Uh, you know, in biblical terms, in, in Catholic terms, it's a kind of worldliness. And although the Soviets paid the compliment of t- trying to destroy it outright, what he means by us ignoring it is that we tend to say, well, you know, that's, that's okay for you, but it's not really important. Um, you know, I think about our shutdowns. Uh, you know, too often people thought of, well, you know, worship is kind of a non-essential activity. It's kind of thing that if you like it, you can do that. But it's not important, and it shouldn't be brought into the public sphere. And that, that really is an insult talking about the lockdowns and you know we made we made the faith basically non-essential as you were saying right we decided that pot shops liquor stores abortion clinics sams everything else is more important and you know that's kind of you know he got the message of what happens when you try to domesticate the faith and you know there's another line in here that i really liked as well i mean among many but when he's talking about the vision of freedom and, you know, it's not cutting down barbed wire. It's not, you know, getting rid of walls. It's when truth defeats lies. And, you know, I think he saw that, you know, the West was was living lies when it comes to truth and, and goodness. That's right. Uh, it's the real the real prison, right, is is interiorly. Um, and that's what what makes his work so profoundly powerful. I mean, there's a there's a moment in the Gulag Archipelago where he says, you know, anybody who's reading this and thinking this is just a political expose, you know, should really just shut the book right now, because that's not really what it's about. I mean, the, the fundamental problem with, with the Soviet view, with the, the, the communist view, is, is not that it's sort of bad on economics or bad on politics in some sort of, you know, technical way, but that it's a mistake about the nature of what man is. And, that, and that's something that Solzhenitsyn and those other great giants of the 20th century, like John Paul II, they understood that this is an anthropological mistake, and it's ultimately a theological mistake. Um, Solzhenitsyn says later in his Templeton address, uh, when he won the Templeton Prize for Freedom, that really what, what's the mistake that we've made in the modern world is that men have forgotten God. And, and that's, that's the reality. And, you know, that's why he says, you know, you, you said it very well. I mean, it's not that he wants us to have a kind of gulag experience, uh, but he understood that there's this oddity that many times we don't learn that lesson, that we have to go deeper spiritually, that we have to really live at the depths of our own existence until we are, for, until we are forced to leave aside many of those material, material blessings of freedom and goods that we have. Well, and you know, reading reading his writings and and reading this book, you know, it really came especially when you're talking about you talked about the uh the Templeton Foundation in England when he in 1983 when he spoke, but also yeah. when he spoke in Harvard in 1978. Uh the elitists did not like what he had to say. I mean, they you could tell Harvard was really uh regretting even inviting him, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, you know, it's fine for dissidents <laughs> from some other country to criticize that country, but when he came over, he basically was saying, 
you know, I find problems here too. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, a lot of people didn't like that because what he was attacking was kind of the edge of elite, secular, kind of progressive, you know, thought worlds that he said, look, these are not that much different from what I have fled from. But, you know, he, he, uh, one of the things that he said, and there's a new volume com- that's just come out from Notre Dame Press, same place from which our book uh, came out. Uh, it's the second volume of his memoirs of his time in the West. It's called Between Two Millstones, book two. Uh, but in, in, you know, in the first book, it, there were some great lines where he talked about that response. And he said, yeah, I was pilloried by all of these, you know, sort of, you know, important people at Harvard and everywhere else. But he said he got letters from people from all over the United States saying, yeah, you've identified problems with our country. Right on, man. Uh, so, so a lot of people recognized that he was speaking the truth about, about our problems. Yeah, and like you said, people don't like to hear the truth. And it reminded me, you know, we talk a lot about the cancel culture. Well, it sounds like they were trying to cancel him in the 70s and 80s because they didn't like what he had to say. So they, they kind of minimized him, didn't they? Or tried That's to. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, essentially by, you know, essentially by the by the time after the the Harvard address in in seventy eight, um, he was kind of you know I mean you know you had to kind of write about him because he was a Nobel Prize winner, but he was no longer somebody who was sort of feted by any of the the important people, and you know and that's that's a real sadness. I mean, part of that is I think because of that mistake about him. Uh, that you know that many that like you know despite the fact that he warned about this in the Gulag Archipelago, this isn't a purely political book. People judged him on political grounds, and you know really he was he was writing about about the human soul, and about conscience and about these basic issues. But then again, may, maybe that made him even more dangerous and more in need of being canceled. Well, and how prophetic, you know, we look at where we are today and, you know, as, as we record this, you know, we're still trying to figure out who the president's going to be. But, you know, there's overwhelming support, evidently, for, you know, kind of socialism and that kind of thought, at least in, in the political atmosphere. And, you know, he wrote so many, so many books that that were, you know, really helpful to understand not only what took place in Russia, but bringing the faith component in it, you know, when I was looking at, you know, the red wheel about the 1917 revolution, and maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, the first circle, you know, where he's really talking about Dante and, and what that means to us. Yeah. I mean, he, he saw his, uh, he saw his experiences in, in essentially Christian terms. And so in places like the first circle, as well as many of the other books, he was really telling about a spiritual pilgrimage, and in, the, in that, you know, in that, in that novel, uh, many of his books are not novels, but uh, but but you know that's one of them. You know, the the kind of main character is a stand-in for himself, who's kind of, you know, on the, on the cusp of things, and he's talking a lot about uh, about that, you know, the, the fundamental decisions that people have to make in their lives. And those are decisions that really do have as their destination either heaven or hell. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and not only did it, does you reference Dante or is Dante referenced in this book, but a lot of other, you know, Catholic writers, uh, you know, like G.K. Chesterton, right? Solzhenitsyn was yeah. a great admirer of Chesterton. We talk, You mentioned Tolkien in here. You mentioned Lewis. You mentioned even Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, the, uh, the, the two essays on... In the first circle, one by uh, my co-editor Jessica Hoot and Wilson, 
uh, really is a, is a wonderful literary approach. The one by James Pontuso later in the book, you know, it indicates how savvy he was about the politics. But the uh, but the essay by Joseph Pierce, who probably a lot of your your readers will know, is yep. a biographer of Solzhenitsyn as well as Chesterton Bellick, is a is a really interesting one because he. Joseph Pierce, uh, you know, when he wrote his biography of Solzhenitsyn, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, uh, you know, one of the things that he had done was he decided that he would try to get some interviews with Solzhenitsyn. And when he when he contacted Solzhenitsyn, he said he was the he was the the author of a biography of Chesterton. And that was what that got, got the door open for him. huh? <laughs> yeah. And when, when he arrived and he, t- he talks about this in the essay in the book. Uh, in our book, you know, he says, you know, Solzhenitsyn, he saw a row of, of, of Chesterton books. And, and the more he talked to him, the more he realized that that fundamental understanding that Solzhenitsyn had was, again, uh, of spiritual values. And so Joseph brings that out about the connections uh, in, in between Chesterton, Tolkien, uh, Evelyn Waugh, uh, and T.S. Eliot, many of these writers that uh, Solzhenitsyn uh, looked at and read. He was, you know, he was a, despite the fact that he was a voluminous writer, he also had time to read as well. Probably because he refused to answer his phone and he was not enmeshed, you know, in our world of of television and and the internet. Uh, but he read those people. One of the funny things in the book is he said, you know, he said to Pierce, you know, I take it that these people are just as unpopular as I am. <laughs> something something to that effect. And uh, and you know, there's a reality there because they too. We're seeing that our modern world separated from God, you know, did not have technical solutions. It, it really only had spiritual solutions, which are, which are that return to God and that return to the, to the interiority and the strength that we have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really interesting reading about him and and learning about his life because you know you think he's you know he's this writer, he's this literary, you know, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. But he was really trained as like a mathematician. He was almost right, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that a lot of his images are are taken from uh, taken from math. So you know, you brought up his his long multi volume uh, uh, novel about the Russian Revolution, the Red Wheel. Uh, you know, it's it it is broken up into what he calls knots or nodes, and those are mathematical terms. Yeah. Uh, taken from geometry, so he was he was technically trained very well. And you know, there's a there's, you know, like I said, he had a a great view of providence. I mean, it's wonderful that he had that background because he was able to work during those years in which he couldn't publish. Uh, he was able to work as a sort of a math and science teacher at the high school level while writing in secret, you know, in the in in the evening. Um, and he 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 was he was also able because of his technical prowess to figure out things about how to get how to get sources <laughs> from out, you know from outside of the Soviet Union, which was heavily closed down. Right. Uh, but he but he did but he knew literature very very well, and it's almost impossible. You know, like I say, he, he, it's almost impossible to imagine how much he had read and how many of these sources, uh, you know, that we would think, oh wow, yeah, that's great, <laughs> you know. He, he had read all of them and, t- and took them in. Well, I think that's what's the, the beauty. You know, he's just not coming from kind of a linear view. He, he saw a lot of different things. He saw a lot of—he he was able to grasp the world and the concepts and the faith and all those things and, and really come to boil it down and tell people, look, this is, this is important. This is what I've learned, and this is what you guys need to wake up to. Otherwise, 
you know, what if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yeah. yeah well, like I said, his, his view was that there was this commonality between the West and, and the East. I mean, you can say that it's because, you know, Marxism came from the West as well. Marx was, you know, himself a German who spent his time, you know, writing in the, the library in London. But, you know, it was that fundamental materialist worldview that says, well, this is all there is. And unfortunately, humans are not meant for that. So what do you do when you have a materialist world, worldview? Well, you then elevate something else. There's an act of idolatry. And, and the act of idolatry is almost always that of the state. And, you know, we, we know this because in, in his writings, he constantly refers to this, this notion that the state can never be wrong, that it is a, it kind of stands above everything, including the natural law and any sense of morals. And he understood that that was what was going to happen, is that, you know, because of the, the nature of human beings, being, you know, we are, you know, we are, uh, we are worshiping creatures. We will worship something. And the problem is, are we going to worship, you know, devils or men in the, in, you know, acting devilishly, or are we going to, to worship God uh, who creates us in order to know him and to know each other and to, to work for each other's benefit. Well, and he points out what happens when you have misplaced worship, right? When it's something other than God, he, he lived it, right? He lived in, a, yep. in, in Russia where, you know, and any of those, whether you're talking North Korea or China, right? God is the yep. enemy because the state has to be the God. That's right. God, God interferes. I mean, this is one of the things that people often don't realize is that, you know, baked into the socialist worldview, right? I mean, when Marx was writing in the 1850s, he basically said that we have to get rid of private property, uh, you know, national boundaries, the family, and above all, religion. And, you know, when Lenin came along, a lot of people say, well, Lenin kind of overdid, but he was really following in Marx's footsteps. And Lenin himself made clear in a number of speeches, <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. That Solzhenitsyn, uh, you know, refers to throughout his work, you know, Lenin said that, you know, anything that even looks religious, you know, I mean, a lot of times today people think, well, I can be kind of spiritual but not religious or moral but not spiritual or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but Lenin made it clear that there could be nothing, you know, of a moral structure to the universe because that looks like religion. And that limits the power of the state, right? That limits, and what we know is that limits the power of basically human beings, flawed human beings who can be monstrous, who are running the state. Yeah, you know, we're down to probably the last three or four minutes, so I, I, I can't get into it too much. But, you know, I watched a talk you did about a year ago, and, it's, and people can find it on YouTube. Just type in uh, David Devel, D-E-A-V-E-L. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, what to do with kind of enemies of freedom and you go through yeah. happiness equality legalism you know liberty without obligation i mean I, I i would encourage people to listen to that because that really kind of sums up what we need to be looking for in terms of when things are going bad are we doing these things yeah he i mean that talk and some of it you know is some some of the basis for my chapter in in the in the book here is really the problem, right? Is that happiness, uh, rightly conceived, right, as spiritual as spiritual growth is good, mm -hmm. but happiness conceived as materials or uh, you know this worldly things is ultimately insufficient. Doing things according to the letter of the law, well, it depends upon whether the law itself is good, and even if it's good, 
the legal boundaries are not enough. Um, social needs then calls us to that deeper, that deeper form of life that alone can really make a society run. And, and I, I think that he's, he's a, you know, sadly, in one way, he's a necessary source for today when so many people are fleeing to forms of socialism or other kinds of you know, materialist fantasy that ignores the fact that we are human beings for whom the question of evil is not whether it's us versus them, but it's, it's us versus us. His, his famous line was that, you know, if only we could separate out the bad people, but alas, that's not the case. The line that runs between good and evil runs right down through the middle of every human heart. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and he understood that. Uh, you know, he was fundamentally a Christian humanist. And that's the only form of humanism you can have that can make can make life go. Well, and he lived through a world in a, in a country where they tried to make things equal, right? They tried to make everybody equal and look what it led to, right? Yeah. It, led, it led to total destruction of millions of people being killed. Right. I mean, he, he points this out is that equality under the law is a perfectly fine thing. But if you're going to make a sort of absolute equality, he says this is going to go against against liberty, because liberty implies that people are going to act according to their own talents and their own lights and their own decisions, and liberty is going to involve a little bit of inequality. If you try to get, get rid of any inequality, you're, you're going to have to squash freedom. Uh, the only way we can make people absolutely equal is by all squishing them down far enough so that they're equal. It's a kind of lowest common denominator, and the only way you can do that is to squash them in a totalitarian way. Well, and, you know, everything, nothing's equal, right? Some people are smarter, faster, prettier, whatever it might be. So to try to to try to try regulate equality is, is really ludicrous. How can people get this book and find out more about Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Yeah. Solzhenitsyn in American culture, the Russian soul in the West. You can go to Notre Dame Press and you can find, actually, they have some good deals running. Uh, the uh, Slavic and Eastern European Studies section, you can find it on the web. They have a nice discount on our books. You can also find it on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, for you know, a great book that's an introductory uh, uh, course in Solzhenitsyn, in a way, is the 2007 Solzhenitsyn Reader, edited by Ed Erickson and mm. Daniel J. Mahoney. Mm-hmm. It's from ISI Press, and it has a great lengthy sort of introduction to Solzhenitsyn's life and themes, and then it's got selections from the big books, as well as some of those famous speeches, like the Harvard Address and the Templeton Address. Well, I really appreciate, you know, all you're doing about bringing this to people's attention, bringing his life, because to ignore what he has to say and ignore his life experience is to our own detriment.